Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament letter of Ephesians. It's been my true joy to preach through Paul's letter to the believers in the region of Ephesus. Um, Wonderful book that God has ordained, Holy Scripture, for us to have, to grow in Him. If you need a Bible, we have some on the back shelf. We'd love for you to have that for reference. I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you to be familiar uh, with the text. Uh, we also have blank pieces of paper back there and pens. If you're a note taker, like to take notes through the sermon for your study and reference later on in the week. It's always my hope that our time on Sunday morning would be a catalyst to your time in the Word throughout the week. If you're new or visiting, I, I want you to know that here at Disciples Church, we're committed to preach and teach the, not the things that we think you need to hear, uh, not the things that we want to say, as is all too popular in modern churches, but we're committed to preach God's Word. And it's my desire to get out of the way as much as possible in doing this, as we effort to faithfully exercise this without compromise to help you grow in your understanding of who God is, what He's called us to in His Holy Scriptures. Um, we, in effort to do this, preach book by book, um, verse by verse, many times word for word, to rightly divide and understand Scripture in light of Scripture. We like to use the ESV translation here. It's a it's a strong word-for-word translation from the original languages, but I found much easier to read than some of the other word-for-word translations. So the ESV is what we will be working out of. Um, today, as we continue in chapter 5 of Ephesians, uh, we're going to look to the next section of the text, um, verse 22 through, through 33. Um, it is here that we encounter truly one of the most substantial and helpful insights in all of Holy Scripture on the topic of marriage. As we look to dive into this passage, I want you to see that Paul's focus on marriage as he's about to get into is really built on the the words of a few verses he's already said in Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 17, where Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God has saved us, church, by His amazing grace from our sin. He's commissioned us to live our days for His glory, for the making much of His gospel, until He ordains to take us home to enjoy Him in holy heaven forever. If you have not truly confessed your sin before God, not truly trusted your life to Jesus to be your Savior and the Lord of your life, this is where you must start. As we look to the rest of this text, you cannot succeed in life. You cannot thrive in what God's intended you to be while in bondage to your sin. You need to be saved, forgiven, empowered with the Holy Spirit to have a will and and an ability to live for Him and His glory. Um, You're desperate for Jesus to be your Savior, to lead your life. And It's our deep prayer that you would know Him, be born again. Church, we must remain mindful of these truths in the days that God ordains for us under the sun, that we would make much of His name. The days that we live are surely evil, 
And as we navigate these things, Jesus is the only answer. May we who belong to him not try to be wise in and of ourselves, gathering of our own wisdom, but we would look to God for his perfect wisdom found in his holy word. May we not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, especially today and in the coming weeks as we look to the most important topic of marriage. Before we dive into the passage that I'll preach today, I want to say a few things about marriage by way of introduction to what we'll do in the next four weeks. The topic of marriage is such a central and important area of life and our testimony, as we're going to see in the coming weeks. Even if you're single, even if you don't plan to be married, you are in a season where you're embracing what Paul will later describe in the Scriptures as the gift of singleness, that you get to do more for the glory of the Lord in your singleness. But even if this is you, you need to have a right understanding of marriage because it's all around you. Whether it's the marriage of your parents, your close friends, members of our church, marriage is all around you and surely a very big part of life. And so we need to all grow in our understanding of it so we can speak godly wisdom about it, we can pray rightly about it, we can encourage our brothers and sisters rightly in what God has called this to be. Now, for those of you who hope to one day be married, or who are married, it is important that we see how central a part of our lives and our Christian testimony our marriages are. Uh, how much our gospel testimony is connected to our marriage, as we're going to specifically see next week. It is my true hope that you really long to better understand God's design for marriage. That you long to humble yourself, to grow in how He has created this to be and to be lived out. The simple reality is there's never been a generation whose view of marriage is high enough. The, the chasm between the biblical view of marriage and the common secular view is and has always been gargantuan. Some cultures and generations in history have respected the importance or the permanence of marriage more than others. But many, like our own, have such a low, casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitude towards marriage that it makes the biblical view even seem maybe ludicrous at times. So out of touch or out of reach. I can promise you that any legitimate study of God's Word of marriage as we look to it with all of Scripture, will truly challenge your own view. And if you commit yourself to it, will surely help you grow in your understanding and your application of it. It's Marriage counseling, the teaching on this topic, has been one of the sweetest parts of my 20-plus year career as a pastor. And I just continue to be blessed, young or old, at what an authentic study of God's Word will do to take your marriage to a place it's never been. Um, my prayer leading up to our time together in this passage and for the next month is that you would be very intentional to really lean in and really consider what marriage is in a far deeper and stronger and more glorious way than you or our culture has seen it before. What God will do with this 
in your marriage, in your life, is exponential. Um, but we must truly come to this topic with true humility. And the greatness and the glory of God on our marriage is beyond our ability to think or to feel, now watch this, without divine revelation, without illuminating or awakening of the work of the Spirit in us. In simpler words, we cannot know what marriage is without learning it from God. So this makes sense. I mean, when we consider that with other things, uh, it's the way we think. If you truly want to understand how something really works, you go to the one who created it, built it, designed it. If you, you may be very skilled at operating your home computer or laptop, but the person or team that designed that platform and the software and the layers within, the depths of that computer, what they know it can do is far superior to what you understand, as skilled as you are. And so we must go to the source of marriage, the author of marriage. That's why we must go to God's Word. must go to God Himself. In my 20 plus years as a pastor, I've been blessed to teach and counsel on this topic with so many couples, hundreds and hundreds of couples over the years. Again, young and old. And some of my greatest highlights as a pastor have been to see God's awesome work in marriages where, where people have found real healing, uh, real forgiveness, real clarity and insight into all that God intends it to be as they live out his plan for their marriages. On the other side of the coin, I've also had some of my hardest and most painful <clears throat> moments of counsel, rebuke, uh, work with married couples and singles. When undealt with sin or pride, the work of the flesh causes one or both to rebel against God and his will and design for marriage and singleness leaving couples often in great turmoil and, sadly, many families in ruin. I promise you that you will be stretched over the next four weeks. And as we dive into this important passage in Ephesians 5, I ask that you humble yourself to really want to know and understand it from God's design and plan and purpose. With that, let's look to our passage in its entirety and then the focus that will that we'll be in today. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, we also, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Church, notice with me four points of focus we see in this entire passage. In verse 22 through 24, we see Paul's instruction for wives as he describes the role that God has given the wife. In verse 25 through 30, we see Paul's instruction for the husbands as he describes the role that God has given the husband. Men, you will notice that Paul has way more to say to the husbands. I think that's because we can be knuckleheads and we need a little more help to see the importance of our role. Verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, and in this gives us a view of the origin of marriage and the definition of marriage. And then in verse 32 and 33, Paul gives us the ultimate purpose for why God created marriage. It's not what we often think of. And the means by which we will thrive in our marriages. What I want to do is approach this passage in these four pieces. Um, to help build a right foundation, though, I want to start towards the end. We're going to work solely in verse 31 today and jump out of that passage into its context of where it comes from in Genesis. Look again with me at verse 31. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 when he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Church, it's here that we see the origin of marriage. Paul is reminding his brothers and sisters in Christ what God's definition of marriage is. And so let's turn to Genesis chapter 2, where this unfolded and this instruction is given, the very beginnings of your Bible. We'll spend a good amount of time here this morning. Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. In its larger context, it says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here we see that God is the one who ordains marriage, and therefore the one who defines marriage. It's his creation. He gets to define it. He gets to purpose it. And both are very important in our fundamental understanding of what marriage is. 
what he ordains it to be and how he decrees it to be lived out. Marriage, church, is God's creation, and therefore it exists for his purposes and to be done by his guidelines. It is important that we stand on that point because our modern day secular sinful culture is so quick to say otherwise. So much so that in our generation, uniquely, we have witnessed a formal attack on the definition of marriage, claiming it to be many things, and for many people, it is not. Church, the critical point of undeniable clarity that we must see here is that marriage is an institution created by God, not man. And therefore, the terms of it and the purpose of it are set by God, not man. This brings us to one of the fundamental theological understandings that we have to have about marriage. And the whole of Scripture helps us to grow in really putting our foundation into this. When God created this world, there were specific things that God, the creator of all things, instituted for man to carry out through this creation that needed to be identified and understood and carried out to his design and his plan. These things, in theological terms, are often called creation ordinances or creation mandates. There are several creation ordinances that all of mankind are commissioned by God to do. One of those we see in Genesis 1.28, and that is to work. God calls mankind to work. It was his goodwill that we would Work the land that he created. Another creation ordinance that God puts on all mankind is that we would practice Sabbath. Meaning one day in seven we would stop and have a day focused on God. He designed that in the DNA of man that we would practice this. And all of our working and all of our ways of staying busy. That we would have a dedicated day to honor him. Another example we see in Genesis 1.28 is procreation. It's a creation ordinance that man would multiply and subdue the earth. And another creation ordinance, which is our main focus today, that we see in the, in the creation narrative is marriage, defined in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Understanding God's intention and unique purpose for creation ordinances are a critical foundation for our study of marriage. Without it, we get off onto a place that we shouldn't be. Two important things we have to know, though, about creation ordinances. Number one, an ordinance that is creational is perpetual. Meaning creation ordinances are to be carried out from the beginning of the creation to the end of that creation. That's its term. That's important. We're going to come back to that in a moment because it's been attacked multiple ways throughout the generations. Number two, creation ordinances are commanded to be rightly honored by all men and women, by all mankind, not just by some certain groups. Let's consider the first point for a moment. An ordinance that is creational is perpetual. It is to continue until that creation ends. The Apostle Paul shows us the importance of the creation design in his teaching in a number of places in the New Testament. As he appeals to the creation order, 
when he asserts the distinct roles of men and women in the church and in the home. He roots the foundation of God's design for these things in the creation account. How did God design this to be? And in this, solidifying his point about how marriage should be, Paul's point is that it is the way it is and still is to be understood and carried out because it's a creation ordinance. For example, one of the places we see Paul do this is when he refers to the headship of the husband, as God defines the relationship to be, by solidifying the principle in the design. In 1 Timothy 2.13, he says, Adam was formed first, and then Eve. He's building the ongoing reason why the roles in marriage are to continue to be on the creation ordinance, and that it's not to change. Time doesn't change these things. Many can be guilty of reading the Bible in parts and wondering and claiming that this no longer applies to us. Now, while there are things that God has ordained to happen only for a time, as Scripture is clear to define that, when the topic at hand is a creation ordinance, it is still for today, and it is to be lived out that way for the rest of this creation. It is not to change. Another example of the perpetual reality that Marriage serves its purpose for this creation. Is Jesus' clear words that marriage is not for the next life? Some of you may not know this. When we die, human marriage doesn't exist or continue. Why? It's designed by God for this creation, for this time in life, and not for the next. It serves a purpose, as we'll see next week, for this creation that is fulfilled and therefore not needed in the next. Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So this shows that after death, human marriage is no longer. Human marriage is God's design and purpose for this life only. Let's consider the next point. Creation ordinances are to be commanded to rightly be honored by all men and women for all mankind, not just for specific people or groups or secular people might say, oh, that's good for you Christians. No, it's His design for all His creation. This means the mandates of God that He gave to mankind at creation are not just for a select group, but are for all people. Now, if you're tracking with that line of thinking, then you might ask a fair question, which, how does a person, given the gift of singleness by God, honor then the marriage ordinance? And we would say it this way, they honor the marriage ordinance by not having marriages themselves. Rather, they honor the marriage ordinance by lifting up God's design for marriage, by speaking of God's design for marriage correctly, by encouraging others in God's design for marriage, by not voting to approve ungodly definitions or practices of marriage, by not tempting a married person with sexual immorality, and so on. The ordinance 
is still a reality in the creation they live in and is to be upheld God's way. So they honor it as appropriate to them. Church, we must rightly be equipped with this understanding because what many will attempt to say is that it's okay for you to believe this because you believe in God or value the authority of His Word. But because they don't value those things, they'll say, I'm not bound by that. I'm not bound by His laws or by His design. That's just simply not the case. Creation doesn't get to tell the Creator how it is or create their own way. That's just more evidence of their lostness and sin, their, their rightness in their own eyes, the deception that they live within. The Creator does not get to choose how they are governed or how things are to be. They are all under the mandate of the Creator. Why? Because they're all His created. He gets to tell us how this is to work. Why? Because it's His creation. Because it belongs to Him and it exists ultimately for His glory. Now let's go back to the definition, installation of human marriage given in Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Again, this is the verse that Paul is quoting in Ephesians 5.31 within our text. I want you to see that Jesus and the apostles, thousands of years later, are holding up the creation ordinance for marriage just as we should today. For example, Jesus taught on marriage as recorded in the gospel testimonies. We can read it in the gospels. He teaches clearly that marriage is a one flesh union made by God and bound until death. To prove that is an unchanging standard. What does he reference or call their attention to? What does he stake his argument in? He calls them back to the creation account and uses the creation ordinance for the authoritative basis of what marriage is. Look with me at Jesus' words in Mark 10, 6-9. Jesus says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He quotes Genesis 2.24. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Speaking about Jesus' words of emphasis on marriage here, one theologian says it this way, and I quote, The New Testament and our Lord Jesus Himself draws its teaching on marriage and on appropriate relations between men and women from Genesis 1 and 2. When the Pharisees are arguing over the law of Moses and what it says about male and female relations, about relations between husbands and wives and divorce and remarriage, the Lord always takes them back to Genesis 2 because the foundations for marriage are found in this passage. End quote. We see again and again this also in Paul's teachings about marriage. He teaches clearly that marriage is an unbreakable union between one man and one woman. And to prove that it's the unchanging standard, Paul refers back to the creation account. Church, this is what we see him do in Ephesians 5.31. He's grounding his teaching in God's design by quoting Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. 
What this means is because God is the one who creates and ordains and decrees marriage is that it doesn't change at the whim of the culture or the desires or the longings of any given person as convicted as that individual may be. So here me clearly say no institution or culture or person has the authority to redefine or reorder the decree design and purpose for marriage as God has declared it to be. Hopefully you see how Jesus and the apostles did not allow man's desire for tradition, man-made tradition, or man's sinful longings to redefine these things be used as a way to see it changed. They used God's authoritative creation as the undisputed authority on what marriage is and therefore should be today. Marriage is ordained and defined by God. You might be going, okay, we get it. But we, we, we have to get it so well. Because so much of our journey, and fleshly journey, struggles with sinful emotions and preferences and family and friends that will move radically away from this. And our temptation is going to be to want to appease our feelings, our preferences. And we must see there is no room for negotiation here. God has made it clear what this is to be and how it is to work. As those who belong to God, we must have undisputed resolve in this way. One of the cool ways we see God ordained marriage is how He ushered in the first marriage. Listen to verse 22 again, Genesis 2.22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Notice that God didn't hide the woman and say, okay, go find her. You know, he, he didn't make Adam go seek her out. No, God brought Eve to Adam. God took the role of being that first father to give away the bride to her husband. The sweet, that sweet tradition in our marriages today, in our marriage ceremonies today, has a tone of important symbolism for God's design for headship, the headship of a father over a daughter, and the very significant moment of honoring God's design where that headship then transfers from the father to the husband. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and, they two sh- and the two shall become one flesh. The man and the woman formally leave their role in the family of their upbringing and they form a new family. This is done in the act of marriage and it is significant and it needs to be understood and valued. I've seen for a lot of years married husbands or wives overcling to the traditions or the desires of their parents and their family after they've been married. And this brings a lot of problems into a marriage because in some ways they're living outside of God's design that a new marriage has begun. We need to rightly see the transition that happens here as God has designed it. And while we are to respect our parents, honor them, even in adulthood, there is a real change that has happened in the forming of a new family. Because God is the one who designs and decrees marriage, church, He is the one who defines it too. 
Jesus drives this home when he says in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is quoting God's definition of marriage found in Genesis 2.24. And he's saying what God has ordained marriage to be is not negotiable. So let's look to that definition of marriage. And I pray that in this we climb into some layers here that really open the door for you to see it in a way you haven't seen it before. And therefore be very blessed by it. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The Word of Truth Catechism recaps all that God's Word says marriage is in question 29. What is marriage? Marriage is a covenant relationship whereby God joins together one man and one woman into a one flesh union designed to be faithful and last until the couple is separated by death. We have to slow down and consider here is the absolute uniqueness of a marriage relationship and that a man and a woman make a vow to covenant to unite until death do them part. And God binds that vow and that covenant into what is called a one flesh union, a relationship and a bond like no other. In God's definition of marriage, there is a depth, church. There's a beauty that I have found most people have not really taken hold of or really understood until better fleshed out with right teaching of the Word. And what's good about that is now there's depths and layers to what this is and purpose for it that you haven't had. And so it's, it's a good way to go forward in honoring God. In my many years of teaching on and counseling people in marriage, I've essentially seen that there's two most popular but contradicting views of what marriage is. One, I would say, is contrived by common man, and one is God's clear design for marriage. I want to look at both of them with you today, and in this, hopefully, help us grow. Let me show you the first version that I found that many naively hold to. I like to call it togetherness. It goes something like this. Two individuals fall in love, and they get to a place where they think, I can't imagine life without you. So let's solidify our relationship so we can be together the rest of our days. The unique point of clarity here is that the couple sees themselves as two individuals who are longing to be together in marriage. But in this, they cling to who they are as individuals, but aiming to be together. The problem with this view is that it's not what God designed marriage to be. I'll clarify what I mean by that in a moment. But see with me how this breaks down. What often ends up happening is that you, when you see marriage as two individuals trying to be together, is that sin in one or both of those individuals causes them to value their individualism at times more than their togetherness. More than what's needed to thrive in their unity. And while you're truly, authentically working hard to be together, 
to be close, in reality, you kind of just become roommates with benefits. It's, and, and so why? Why does it become that? Because you still see yourselves as two individuals who are efforting to be together. But when that effort weans or your selfishness flexes, you really end up living separate, even though there might be times or ways that you come together. Some unavoidable factors that chip away at togetherness in this view is just everyday frustrations of life. The newness of your togetherness will wear off. If that's a big part of the fuel for making two individuals work together, then again, what you end up pretty quickly is something that's very separate. Another thing that chips away at this is just boredom. It's just the routine of life. You just get bored. Opportunities to be lazy or selfish begin to creep in and become very regular practice. This is why I plead with couples to say, you just still have not seen the full and normal you, other person, in your courting season. Because they're still efforting to put their best on. That will wear off. Even though you think you see that, you don't yet. Another thing that chips away at togetherness is fights that just go unresolved. You toss it under the rug in the corner and just try to go back to normal and leave it alone. But the stank kind of builds in the room and like it, it, it affects you. Sin, another thing that chips away is that sin is not rightly confessed and or forgiven in the relationship. Hurts don't, are not properly addressed and or healed. And the pursuit of sin or something in one of you or both of you that draws you away is also a huge problem to a view of togetherness. In this, you still see yourself as an individual and that's the primal view in this mode. While there's efforts to be together, it fundamentally is missing what God has designed marriage to be. The view of two individuals efforting to be and remain close or together is not sustainable when all of this that I just mentioned is haunting you day after day, year after year. So you do your best to keep close, to try to make it work. Right? Does it sound familiar? Maybe you've experienced this in your own marriage. Maybe you've seen it in your parents' marriage or in a friend's marriage. We see it all over. Sadly, surveys show that many large numbers of people are very unfulfilled, unhappy in their marriages. I think this is largely due, in my experience, to misplaced foundational view of what marriage is in the first place. It doesn't matter how hard they're working if what you're aiming to do is wrong or short-sighted. I like to use this illustration often over the years. Christopher Wren designed St. Paul's Cathedral in London. There's a couple pictures of it here. <clears throat> One of the world's most beautiful buildings. And he wrote about the reactions of the construction workers who were asked what they were doing. And workers who were bored or tired responded by saying, I'm laying bricks or I'm carrying stones. But one worker, 
who was mixing cement, seemed cheerful and enthusiastic about his work. And when asked what he was doing, he replied, I am building a magnificent cathedral. The work they were doing was very similar, and yet the perspective about what they were doing was hugely different. And I think often where people with a togetherness view of marriage run out of gas is it just becomes, I'm laying bricks, I'm carrying stones. They miss the bigger picture of what God is doing in marriage. They lose view of it. They lose practice of it, understanding of it. One of the main reasons I think many people get down and out in their marriage is their understanding of what marriage is, the togetherness view, leaves them with a fundamentally faulty view of what marriage really is meant to be. I've said it this way. It's like trying to use a toaster as a skateboard. Right? That makes for a very frustrating day of skating. Right? Can you picture it? But if I learn to use the skateboard to skate, how much more fun that is. And the toaster to make toast. Right? Life's a lot better. We must slow down and really come to understand God's design for marriage. Because it is not like anything else. And what God does when He makes two become one is so key to beginning to really understand the depth and the framework of what marriage is meant to be. I have found most people still see their marriages as two individuals who are committed to be together. And if that togetherness doesn't work, then because there's an overgrip still on their individualism, they have justification for just moving on or trying again. This is toxic. This is a toxic view of what marriage is. I plead with couples to do way more serious business before they make their vows, to understand the depth of the commitment they're making. Hopefully you can see with me why we are so desperate to truly understand God's design for this. Instead of togetherness, I like to call it oneness. I didn't have to work that hard at that name. You'll see why. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, listen to Jesus' words in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 10.6-9, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God has joined them together. They're not just working, see this, to stay together. When we really see God's definition of marriage, we rightly see they're no longer two individuals, but now something different in marriage. Two have become one. This is so key. We have to get this. God made them, male and female. He made two to become one. In this, He lays the construct of a family and for procreation. This is the only way children are made. Marriage is only between one biological male and one biological female. Not many husbands or wives, but one. 
It cannot happen. Marriage cannot happen. It is not marriage if it is an effort to be between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. This is fundamentally flawed. This is not marriage. God made them distinctly, he says, male and female. He made their bodies to engage and to procreate as only male and female can. All of man's efforts to redefine marriage outside of God's creation ordinance is a futile effort. And in the end, it is simply not marriage, despite what they want to call it. God is the only one who designed it and therefore gets to define it. It is the sinful arrogance of created man to think otherwise. Let me say it again so we're very clear. Let me say it with different words. To call homosexual or multiple spouses marriage is to completely reject and deny the Creator's unique, precious design for one biological man and one biological woman to become one. It doesn't matter what the state calls it. It doesn't matter what the culture calls it. It doesn't matter what the popular vote calls it. Mankind does not hold the rights to rewrite or redefine what God has defined in the creation ordinance. Nor are we to embrace that line of thinking in the name of peace, love, or tolerance. It is not ours to change. And in the end, we are not loving those who think it benefits their life to go this direction. We cannot honor God and we do not tell the truth to those we effort to love when we embrace, join them in, or endorse their man-made definitions of marriage and or man's effort to justify multiple partners or homosexual engagement. The gender that God makes people is not up to interpretation or feelings or whatever we want it to be. He made mankind, male or female. And when one man and one woman unite in a one flesh union, listen carefully, they're uniquely but different, uniquely different but complementary genders are united together by God into a one flesh union. Jesus says they are no longer two, but one. That means they are not two who have come together to effort to be together forever. We could write a song about it. He says they're no longer two. They're one. We have to do business to climb into that. In God's economy, in God's eyes, in God's design. He doesn't see two individuals trying to be together, but two who have become one in marriage. In togetherness, we, the view is still two individuals working to be and remain together. But in our sin, we still act as individuals, and that's why it breaks down. We need to see it God's way, that we're no longer two but one. This is a supernatural thing that God does in a marriage 
Even though, in case you think I'm completely off my rocker, even though there's still two people, all right? No one's arguing that, okay? There's still two people. But in the economy of marriage, they've become one in a way we have to see and understand rightly. There's a bond, a uniting that God does that makes this something very special and very new. This is why the most central, watch this, and vital part of any wedding is the vows. You can have miles of parade and music and flowers and all of the pomp and circumstance that you want to put around a wedding. But it's not a wedding unless the vows are rightly declared. That's the key. You could do nothing else but just simply gather to say the vows before God, and you are married. Let me ask you this. This is interesting. Where are the vows at a wedding said? They're said at a wedding altar. Whether your wedding is inside or outside, it's always understood that the vows of a wedding are said at what is known as the wedding altar, even if there's not an altar. That is the location that's done. Have you ever stopped to think about why? Why is it called an altar? An altar is a place of death. That doesn't seem to fit the beautiful white dress and flowers and flower girls, right? How does that go together? But it is the essential part of making a wedding an actual wedding. Why? Because it is exactly what is happening when God makes two one. When you decide to become one with another person, you are laying down your individualism. If you don't want to lay down your individualism, don't get married. If you already are married, it's too late. You don't get to go backwards. You are saying, I no longer will act as an individual, demanding my own way, but instead I will be one with my spouse. Well, surely you are unique and not the same and distinct in the way God made you. And as we'll see later in the series, given very specific roles that you honor God in, there's a supernatural thing that God does to bring you together in oneness that requires you to see that you're no longer two but one. A way that I found it helpful to understand this, it's a little morbid, my illustration, and it's really weird, but I think it helps make the point. Imagine what you're doing in your commitment on your wedding day to become one is like going to the, the surgeon, the hospital. And you are so ready to make this change and all that's going to come with it. The commitment you're making to no longer be an individual but to be joined to another. You look to that surgeon and you say, sew me to this person. And he knocks you both out and spends the next many hours of a day putting your two bodies together. And when you wake up, 
you are now this freaky three-legged thing. <laughs> Told you it's weird. <laughs> and now two has become one. You've been on your own two feet. You learned to walk when you were little. You learned how you balance, how you navigate a room, the pace at which you like to go, the temperature at which you like things. You have to see you have given all of that up to be joined to another. And I want you just to pause for a minute. We're going to get to this later in the series. Think of how much communication and patience and love is required to just walk out of the hospital in your new form. Not to mention drive the car or buy the cheese or anything else you're going to do every minute of every day for the rest of your lives. I'd love to help young lovers who think they've found the one stop and really become freaked out at what they think is really romantic. Because the decision you make to become one with another is the biggest decision you will ever make in your life. Nothing impacts you as much as it. No house you buy, no amount of tattoos you put on your body, whatever else you want to come up with impacts you. Even having kids has a season. Marriage, according to Scripture, is till death you part. You have to see the weight, the intimacy, the gravity of this commitment. This is a potent but amazing thing. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Do you see? God is the surgeon. God is the one who in each marriage ordains or performs a uniting call called one flesh. Man doesn't do this. God does it. And it's not in man's power to destroy it. Jesus is clear. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God receives the vow and the covenant made by the man and the woman. And in his power, in his power, he joins them as husband and wife into a one flesh union. God does that. No one else does that. No one else binds two into one. No one else is the author of marriage. That is why so-called homosexual marriage is not marriage. It's outside of the construct of the Creator's design and the Creator's doing. It lacks the necessary recipe for marriage and the author of the one who does the uniting. People can think it's marriage, they can call it marriage, but it fundamentally is not. The world does not get, does not get this. And sadly, sadly, many modern-day Christians, people claiming to belong to Christ, lack a full or right understanding of this. Which is one of the reasons why marriage is often treated so casually in our culture and never lived out to the fullness of what God intends it to be. This is one of the reasons marriage in the world and often in the church is not seen as the miracle and the wonder that it is. And hopefully today as you begin to taste some of this, begin to climb into it, you can see just how much room there is for God to take you to places in marriage that you've never thought or been. 
What I find really interesting is the answer about what this is, is right before us. In just about every marriage or wedding you ever go to, you don't have to go any further than the traditional wedding vows to see how God has designed it to be. And so to wrap up this morning, I want to look at the vows with you. I know of no legitimate pastor who will officiate a wedding and call it official without the formal wedding vows being included. Why? Because they are the covenant that honors God's design for marriage. A couple may include some of their own words in addition to the formal vows, but these must be included if you are going to honor God and call it marriage. Consider the formal traditional vows with me for a moment and see what I mean by God's intention for marriage has been right in front of us the whole time. Um, For those of you who are planning to be married or who are married, take a second with me. I want to encourage you to think about the relationship of marriage that you're hoping for and or are in with new clarity, with a fresh understanding of the commitment that was made at the altar that you were the day you were married or that it's about to happen. Here they are. The first, I take you. I take you and you take me. I give myself to you and you give yourself to me. The second, to be my wedded wife, or if proclaimed from the wife, to be my wedded husband. To be wedded is to be bound by God as one. That's oneness. That's not individuals trying to be together. That's two who are made into one. To be formed into a one flesh union like nothing else. To have and to hold is the next part. Meaning, you are mine and I am yours. The scriptures in 1 Corinthians go so far to say that the the husband's body belongs to the wife. The wife's body belongs to the husband. That's That's how true and complete this is. You do not belong to yourself anymore. You are now one with another. You've given yourself to this person. You've signed over the rights to them to become one. From this day forward, hear with me, that's covenant language. What is that? That's the term of the beginning of the covenant. The beginning of the term of the marriage covenant is from this day forward. Not yesterday, not two weeks from now. From this day. It is legal and binding language. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. These are further terms, meaning if our relationship gets way better or if it gets way worse, If our lives get way better or way worse, if we become really rich or crazy poor, if we are healthy and vibrant or utterly sick and incapacitated, what these statements are saying, we have to see it clearly, 
is that there is no circumstances that can or will divide the wedded union. There are no clauses in our covenant that gives us an out. We're all in. Your spouse can become a terrible person and completely not live up to your expectations or their promises. But you are still their spouse. And no change in circumstances changes this or gives you an out. Again, you must see this with God's eyes for marriage and not how man has often chosen to view this. Even if as you look back on it, you see the sin of the view you had. We literally could say, whether you're faithful or not, whether present or not, whether convicted as a criminal to life in jail or not, we are still bound by a one flesh union. The next phrase is to love and to cherish. What this means, you've got to see this so clearly because we romanticize it. It means I will love you and I will cherish you as my own life and body, no matter what. Meaning my commitment is to love and to cherish you is not a matter of my feelings or our circumstances. It is a matter of covenant commitment that I am making to you here and now. And then the next phrase, till death do us part. Church, this is the closing term of the covenant you're making. This is the only term that ends the covenant of marriage, according to God's word. Why is this the only one? It's the only one that God's in charge of, according to his sovereign plan. And it's what he's made clear throughout Scripture. We get to some of that later. He is the one who binds us. He is the one who separates us or ends the covenant of the one flesh union with death. Again, there is no marriage after death. As I quoted earlier, marriage is for this life only. The covenant you make is only for the terms of the, of the life of the man or the woman. What does that mean? If one of you dies, the covenant is completed. You're no longer in a one flesh union. Why? Because God ordains that the one flesh union ends with death. While many want to romanticize that they're still married to their spouse after they've died, biblically, truly, they are not. The, the union is finished. The covenant fulfilled. It might be very special to you. You're just not married anymore. What's amazing to me, before I say that, one other thing. If one of you dies, because the covenant is now ended, that also means that the living person is free to remarry. What's amazing to me is that these are the vows people say, and yet very few really understand and embrace what they really mean and what they have entered into, a covenantal vow. Let me say something here that we'll build on later in the series. While it takes two participating people to have a relationship, it only takes one to stay faithful to the covenant you made before God and to the other person, meaning you can't control what your spouse does but you can honor God and the marriage covenant you've made 
regardless of what the person you're married to is deciding to do. And I pray that this is a true blessing for you. These understandings and the depth of this as we climb into it to really begin to see what God has intended this to be. Have a better understanding of oneness and the vows that we say. If you've had a lacking view, a, a, a short-sighted view of this, maybe even how you're living this out, let this be a wonderful time to confess the sin of that and even repent to your spouse. Um, to, to, to say, I, I want to love you. I want to walk with you in these ways better than I have before. I want to honor God in all that this is. I, I believe you will really be blessed for this. Truly do. Again, the Word of Truth Catechism answer for what is marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship whereby God joins together one man and one woman into a one flesh union designed to be faithful and last until the couple is separated by death. Are you starting to see the fuller picture here? When Paul's quoting this definition of marriage, all that it's built on, all that God intends it to be, is foundational to our understanding. We're going to get to our roles. We're going to get to the purpose. Later, I'm going to offer a special class on a Friday or Saturday where we're going to get into those practical layers of communication and decision-making and intimacy. Those are all key to this. But we must start here. God is the one who ordains marriage. God is then the one who defines marriage. God is the one who determines the means and terms and the uniqueness of what marriage is. Next week, we'll look at Ephesians 5, 20, uh, 32 and 33 and discover what God's Word says about the purpose for marriage and what the fuel to really thrive in marriage is. A very instrumental message coming our way. Will you pray with me? And then we're going to sing a closing song together before we go. Father, I thank you for this time together in your Word. I thank you for all of your word and what it means to us to rightly divide your holy word. There's so much that we've been so busy with many days in the practical and the temporal that surrounds us. And yet you, the living God, the holy God, has ordained and endured and persevered your word, your written word for us through generations. No written document so solidified, so backed, and, and so we come to it which is confidence to learn about who you are and what you will for us. We thank you, God, for this beautiful picture into marriage. I pray that you're only beginning to, to create a hunger in us to understand this better. And there's a true desire to honor you in these things. That we would be fulfilled and satisfied, as we spoke of earlier, in you above all else not looking to things that will break down, things that will act selfishly to fulfill us, but ultimately to you to be the source of that, the true source of our love for each other and what you've called us to do and to be. Hear us now as we praise your name, as we, as we sing out the truths of what you've done and how you are truly better than anything else. Be worshipped, our good God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.